Hello, welcome to uh, episode 77 of Fear of a Black Planet. Today I'm going to talk about my views on the media. <clears throat> Although I, I think I'm going to talk also about what I was talking about last week. <coughs> so, I got uh, quite a nasty comment on some on a comment. I replied to a comment on a comment I had made months ago on a Jordan Peterson video. And actually this was a critical comment, but it was a it was meant to be a thoughtfully critical comment in my reflections about his views on creativity. As I've said before, I don't think he's entirely right about an artist. I think he's too reductive, I think he's too utilitarian. And um, I just feel that some of the things he was recommending about what an artist should do in order to support themselves and blah 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 sounds good on paper. He's basically saying get a part-time job and, you know, and have some something stable because if you're dealing with the unknown and chaos as an artist, which you inevitably are, you've got to have a counterbalance to that. And that is not wrong. It's just that my question was more about it today. Everybody says that, you know, get, a, get an, uh, an additional job and blah, blah, blah. And, Certainly I do that, and a lot of artists I know have to do that. Obviously, very few people can just survive on their art, or very few people have independent income. But the reality of, of that is not, it's not so simple these days. I think, um, I guess, what the, I'll read my comment, but the, the, the sort of thrust of what I was trying to say is that even when doing that, it doesn't quite solve the challenge that you think it, you're saying it does, or you think it might. Um, just get. I think underlying it was. Um, I hadn't really, couldn't really express it point properly, but I think underlying the comment was basically my own experience of the current economy. You know, I th well certainly I've talked about this before. I I went freelance as a journalist in two thousand and seven, which was just before. I mean, well, it was just happening. The crash was just happening. Um. And also the industry itself was just changing as a result of the internet. So there were these two major forces which are still resonating right now and still very current in my chosen profession and in the economy at large. And I think that those particular things have affected me and certainly a lot of people I know in terms of making a creative life, making an artistic life. And, and so the old model of having a part-time job, uh, that was always precarious, but it, I just think that in um, zero-hours contracts and um, a sort of retail, consumer-driven economy, and uh, plus the distribution democratization on the internet, which means that there's a, a plethora of art as well. So that, as I've said, I've talked about that a lot. It's difficult to discriminate between well-crafted art and just self-expression. And that's, you know, and, and it had many benefits, but it's also created a lot of problems, as I've talked about in recent weeks, for the artists themselves. And... So yeah, this was the, I, I, I talked about my my views on 
on this um, before in relation to Jordan Peterson. Um, let me find this comment. Um, you know, sorry, um, it's the video is called "The Curse of Creativity," and he's basically talking. He's talking about all that thing about creative achievement and stuff like that, which I don't agree with. You can't define an artist by what they've achieved. It's not that simple. Um, because how do you define achievement? There are plenty. You know, you, you, how do you fit Keats and Blake and, um, you know, name any poet really? Uh, you know, or the, the the anonymous ballad writers. You know, it just doesn't fit. I mean, I I think it's right to have, as I've said before some kind of hierarchy of merit so that you can distinguish good art from bad art, but you can't be too clumsy about that because then you you negate something which is essentially difficult to define. You negate huge parts of it. So anyway, let me let me um let me read the quote. This is me writing now. I've watched this a million times and much of it really chimes with my experience of being a creative person. However, it, it, it is very easy for non-creative people to lecture about get a job. As he says, when creative types are not being creative, they are effectively being suffocated. So he has some interesting things to say in that, by the way, about the personality type that becomes creative and what kinds of environment can really be detrimental to them, which I think is it rings true. To the outside world, this looks like laziness or being work shy, etc. But I have worked numerous difficult jobs and I've stuck them out. True. That said, every job has made me miserable. Also true. <laughs> it is not as simple as get a job on the side, especially today. The chances are that your do ad is going to be just as precarious as your artistic vocation and not well paid enough to pay on a part-time basis. Also, artists can't afford to be too practical. They have to be unpractical by definition. You can't understand creativity from a utilitarian perspective. I like him, though, and the self-authoring program has been a game-changer for me, which is all true. His Jordan Peterson's self-authoring program has really helped me, and I found some of the stuff he says about creativity very interesting. Now, I get this really quite nasty and carefully designed. I think some of the things, I guess, obviously, they just assume that when you're, when you're talking like this, you're being self-pitying, which I wasn't. I was just trying, you know, if I was being self-pitying, I wouldn't have been working for the last 10 years solidly. Um, I wouldn't have stuck out some really difficult jobs. Uh, I wouldn't be making money and I wouldn't be paying my way and I wouldn't be stuck in, sticking at it. I think also what I said is that, you know, I think this rubs up the wrong way when I said you have to be unpractical by definition. And I think this really rubs people up the wrong way. So I get this quote from some numpty. Saying, Sounds like you're a narcissist who's disgusted by the idea of serving other people. You want to do the boring work to you want them to do the boring work to keep you alive and comfortable by doing nothing in return. Definitely a narc. And I reply, bit of a cliche, mate, which it is, right? I think this is a, an incredible cliche, and I think the main thing I want to put across about this is that it's a caricature, and this is very often the format, isn't it, of snarky comments online of people's response. The it's designed to take any nuance or particularity out of, of, of what you're saying to negate your experience and to, it usually is probably a response to something they can't quite understand, they don't quite understand what I mean by unpractical, blah, 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 blah. they don't understand, they're, they're a bit thrown, it's not what they expected, um, so they have to reduce it into something they expected, something predictable, something easy, something which uh, is familiar to them, 
so narcissist. But again, this, I think one of the reasons I want to talk about this also is that this is exactly the, an example of what, as an artist, you, you have to deal with. Narcissism. But I mean, I think the right response is to just say that's a cliche that doesn't have any uh, relation to the particulars of what we're talking about in this given situation or, or case-by-case basis. Um, so there you go. And, uh, and the idea I, of disgusted by the idea of serving other people. Actually, reading the comment again, it's really stupid because uh, that's not true. I mean, I don't think you can be an artist unless you have a, sen- a, a, a sense of service in what you do. And anyway, so I wrote a bit of a cliche, mate, full stop, and that was it. And then they just got will come back. At least it's true, a sensitive, tormented, misunderstood artist who's been viciously persecuted by soulless, conformist subhumans whose tiny minds aren't ready to accommodate the titanic individuality is also a cliche, and BS too, as if that's what I was saying. You know? Um, again, all that all this person has done is double down on their original cliche. That's all they've done. They've doubled down on their original caricature. Now, I'm not going to look at that too much. It's really pissed me off just looking at it again. Um, but I've had this all my life, and any artist and anybody that tries to do anything will always have it, and it will always come in the form of a caricature. Because what they're trying to say is that don't think, don't think you're so good. Who do you think you are? You're just this, this, and this, and we've seen it all before, and there's nothing new here, and you're not original. You're not what you think you are. You're not what you say you are. Um... And of course, one of the most effective parts of this line of attack is that there's a grain, a minuscule grain of truth in it, right? Because every artist does feel that feeling of being misunderstood and uh, the feeling that they're in a situation which is a sort of dead end, that nobody will understand them. And, you know, obviously you can have that dark thought where you think, is everybody just... You know, how do you deal with it? Either you become a massive egotist and think you're great and everybody else is an idiot, which is what a lot of people do do, so there's a grain of truth in that. Or you go into the opposite mode of uh, thinking that you're the, you're the asshole, you're the narcissist, and, and uh, maybe you're just self-deluding yourself. Now, this is the conundrum of the artist, I think. And I guess one of the themes of this podcast is there's a middle way to think about that. You don't need to th- you can You can consider yourself to have something special to say, something independent to say. Um, but you don't need to go, and you can, and you can, and you can account for yourself being different without taking, without thinking it's a dead end, you know, that you're, you're so weird that you can't fit into society. And I think that artists frequently deal with this challenge. Um, but this is just a comment that's designed to stick the knife in. And one of the things that is so insidious about a caricature is that it, uh, it's based on a grain of truth, so so it's just enough truth to to make you doubt yourself if you've got any any element of that in you already. But I think that also what a caricature signals to me is nihilism, and that's why it relates to last week. Why does it relate to nihilism? It's difficult to put into words, but I just have this feeling that... Well, cause, cause, because nihilism, as I've said many times before, actually, this is why. Because nihilists...
are terrified of the new, of terrified of something they don't understand, are terrified of. That nihilism really is not what it claims to be, some deep penetrating insight into the meaninglessness of the world. It's a form of laziness. It's a form of unthinkingness disguised as free thought. It's a form of ignorance disguised as wisdom. And it's a way of, um, it's a sort of moral self-persuasion tactic to maintain ignorance's bliss. Like in the Matrix, you know? Is it Cypher when they're in the restaurant and he says, I like the taste of beef. You know, that kind of mentality that that character in the Matrix sums up is, um, that's, that's what I'm getting at when I say nihilistic, because quite often that person will come with a whole host of very apparently solid arguments to, to be basically, to not make a difference, to not bother getting out of bed, to just kind of trundling along in life, being a cynic and being a dickhead and being a narrow-minded, ignorant, um, hater of all things beautiful, hater of uh, ideas, because it's too much effort, basically. It's just laziness at the bottom line of it. And laziness is fueled by a terror of the unknown. And so, obviously, in that, if you've got that mentality, the best thing you can do is reduce things that hit you as unknown or unquantifiable and reduce them to the, to the most simplest caricature that's available to you. So you take the you take some grain of truth. You detect some kind of insecurity in somebody. This is this is what you'll find in face to face passive aggressive contact as well. That you'll that someone will sense some kind of fear or insecurity, and then they'll just double down on that and create some caricature based on it. And it's a, it's a way of basically saying if I'm not going to get to fully develop myself and if I'm too scared to fully develop the unknown aspects of myself and if I'm too much of an OCD control freak, then I'm not going to allow you to be anything other than that as well. So here's a caricature based on some uh, slight insight of truth that I might have had into your fears or insecurities. And this is, I just, one of the things that annoys me about that, this is playground tactics. I had this when I was a kid. You know, another example is like, I remember when I when I started getting into the doors, which I've been listening to a lot more recently, by the way. When I started getting into the doors when I was like 14, 15, the caricature, and, and obviously like uh, kind of idolizing Jim Morrison. I was that kid, you know. Obviously the caricature is, oh, you've got, you're a homo and you've got a sexual attraction. It's like the minute you start venerating or you, you have any, there's any kind of... Um, love or adoration it's just it's easy to caricature oh, you're home. so, so this, this that's what this person is doing now i mean the sad thing is this person's probably an adult they're probably in their 40s or 50s and just their resentment is stuck at adolescent level and it's playground tactics and they think that the grain of truth is what gives them their power but actually the grain of truth is their greatest weakness because all they've done is take something that could have been a psychological insight and narrow it down to to the most generalized, boring, uninformative uh, cliche and cookie-cutter, uh, ready-made insult that they can. And uh, they reveal more about themselves than they reveal about the person they're attacking because 
And also, by the way, this, this accusation of narcissism is a complete misuse of the word. Like I've talked to many psychologists. I've got a lot of psychologists in the family. And the word narcissism means inventing a false self. That's what narcissism is. It is not being egotistical. If they just said, make it over yourself, you're being egotistical, they might have had a point. Um, even if it's just a grain of a point. But the fact that they start saying narc and narcissism, it's like you clearly don't understand psychology. Um, and it's, again, it, quite often people like to sell their own, the, the, the way that a nihilist will, 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 will sell this kind of reductive caricature tactic to themselves is that they're in, they have an insight into people. No, you don't have an insight into people. You don't ha you're not an observer of people. You're not as smart as you think you are. You're actually very dumb. All you're, all you're very deft at doing is, is reducing things to the simplistic, most negative description of an archetype that you can possibly imagine that's so general and so empty that it applies across so many different circumstances and, and individual cases at, to the point where it's completely useless to anybody and doesn't actually further any dialogue, you know? Um, but anyway, maybe I shouldn't have left that comment but I, I think that it really wasn't meant to be a, a self-pitying personal comment. It was meant to be a comment which captured what I felt uh, was an aspect of nuance about being a creative person in this particular time and place. Uh, that was what it was trying to do. And I think that it's a very... any We all know that you can abuse other people psychologically by, by taking by robbing their, their experience of any nuance. So anyway, there's an example of nihilism. Another thing I want to say about that poem I read last week, by the way, I can't remember if I said it. It's a very attacking poem, but I recognise that the reason why I have this hang-up about nihilists is because I do, is, is my psychological shadow. I, I get it, you know? So anybody who's out there who thinks they want to try and use that as a tactic against me, I'm one step ahead of you. Don't fucking bother. Because actually, the realisation of that means it's much more important, that poem, than I thought it was to me and to my performance. Because The reason why I find that such a detestable way to look at the world is because I realise that I am always in danger of succumbing to that temptation of persuading myself out of living a fulfilled life by the what's the point, who cares anyway kind of tactic. It's lazy, it's dangerous, and it's very much part of my dark side, my monster. There's a monster inside of me which thinks like that, and actually... Far be it from like some revelation that goes, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have this attacking or projection onto other people. And maybe, it no, that's not the right answer when it comes to the shadow. It's not going to take away my sense of meaning. It's not going to stop me performing those kind of poems. That's not a cycle. That's, again, a reductive caricature. What the, the subtle realization of when you discover that the things you think are out there are actually inside of you means you were more onto the facts than you thought you were. That the and you also now have a, a a way of dealing with it. That that kind of nihilism's still there. That projection wouldn't come out of nowhere. But I realised that why it's such a 
and this is, I think, true across a lot of situations when you're, you, you need to kind of therapize yourself, that the realization that those things that you annoy you about other people are annoy you because they, um, they dig up parts of yourself that you don't like. Now, a lot of people, again, a lot of people will use that. It's like, isn't it just in your own head, you know? Is the reason why you don't like that in other people's... Yeah, that's not a psychological insight. That's just a way of shutting you up and, and, and avoiding and evading the truth. Because it doesn't mean that it's not out there, that you weren't onto something in the first place. But yes, one of the reasons why nihilism and cynical, lazy, smarty-pants attitudes bother me is because I know I have that in a big way in myself. And it's a very insidious little um, insect in my brain that uh, if I allow it to have any power, will just tear away everything. And it's usually the voice of depression when I have it. So yes, a lot of my rage comes from that. Well done. But that doesn't mean that when you feel those things, when those things bother you so much, that it isn't there and that you shouldn't be fighting it. And that's what a lot of people try and they try and therapize you out of existence. That a lot of this kind of fake psychological insight is really just a form of shut up, be cynical, nihilistic to get to just kind of blandify and homogenize everything again. Stop being different. Stop thinking for yourself. You know, but it comes disguised as insight, disguised as revelation psychology. It's amazing how the psych the psychological revolution from Freud onwards has become so has become a weapon of the very thing it was trying to to avoid, which are these self-destructive habits in humanity. So anyway, there's that. Got that off my chest. Um, but the point still stands about my original comment there, that I think that the, the, the major problem now is that even the sacrifices that you might have had to make in the past to be an artist or to live a bohemian life are becoming increasingly untenable, even, even as they were already kind of, you know, living on the breadline and it's... It, there's some there's there's something I want to develop, and it's 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 much more a particular observation rather than a generalization across time. That's what I was trying to get at, and I blame myself for not being, not thinking it through. But you know, I was just trying to communicate. You know, just trying to 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 communicate with other artists out there who who might have been watching that video. But then you're going to get this kind of caricature, aren't you? And it's very difficult to fight against it. But um, I will fight against it, and uh, if that dickhead is listening to this out of any curiosity or any tactic to try and get ammo for their next attack by listening for my insecurities and my weaknesses, they can fuck off because I'm ready for you. I'll rip you limb from limb. Do not fuck with me, you know? Do not fuck with me. Um... Yeah, so, and it's not paranoia, by the way. It's ex it's bitterness of experience talking when I get like this because it's it's all I've ever had, and it's all artists ever get when they put themselves out there is this sneering, contemptuous, snarky, reductive caricature, and it yeah, it's designed to 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 create a kind of disintegration of the self.
and the, and and the part the problem is is that when you're an artist, you, you're the type of person you are, it's very difficult to fight against it because you, in order to to sort of quote unquote toughen up, you have to sacrifice an aspect of yourself to to fight that kind of crap, and they know that intuitively when they come at you. So that's another part of the the attack is to try. They 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 know that in order to fight back, you're going to have to sacrifice a part of your own integrity of who you are. And then they could get, and then they get to turn around. Well, you're not the artist you said you were. You're not a sensitive, well, a nasty person. So, yeah, it's uh, God. I know. Like, if if this YouTube channel were ever to actually take off, I would have to avoid comments. <laughs> I really would. Um, because one comment like that, you know. But then, but then again. I think it would just. I think. I think that on a on a grander scale, these comments would just prove the cliche element because they would all be very similar. Because anyone that's got an actual criticism to make, and this is true across any kind of criticism that an artist has to take, if it's true criticism, it won't hit you as a personal attack. It will hit you as an artist. You'll go, Ah, oh, yeah, that's right. I should have said this, or I didn't quite express myself properly here. This needed a clearing up. That's true criticism. And anything else other than that is lazy, ad hominem, caricature, and reductive, and comes from a place of, of, of self-hate and insecurity from that person making the attack. And the quality, the way you know the difference is... Like, if, if I'm in a poetry group and then someone says, you know what, the first stanza is just, there's this phrase here, it's just a bit vague, it could do with more... Clarity. I'd like to know more specifically what you mean. Uh, what, what I think. I think. I don't think you've quite captured the the feeling or intuition that that you want to. That might be difficult to take because I might be proud of it. But then, I, but then there there'll be enough of me that goes. Yeah, you know what? Here, it, you'll see it as an opportunity. It will. It will feel like an rather than feeling like a devastating critique of your existential value. It will feel like. There's an opportunity to get deeper and more articulate, and um, that there'll be a, there'll be enough of a, of a of a creative stimulating thrill to it. And anything that doesn't leave you like that is not actually criticism. It's just bullying and self contempt projecting itself outwards. <clears throat> so anyway, the other thing, the, the main thing actually, I wanted to talk about today is how. I feel that the mainstream media, but I'm just going to call it the media because you know what I mean. So the mainstream media is a bit of a cliche and that will make me sound like some Alex Jones ranter, but I'm not. The media is a form of terrorism. That's the subject I want to talk about. And I actually agree with Trump. I think that the press is the enemy of the people. And I think that a lot of the, the faux outrage that has come from CNN, and there's a version of it with Brexit and the BBC and... and and uh, uh, the Guardian in this country is that it signifies something really insidious because the outrage comes dis uh, disguised as defense of the people, defense of the public interest security and, and uh, you know, 
the, the way that the what I'm trying to say is the way that the media pre, uh, position themselves against Trump. Trump is a kind of way of triangulating with the with the public. It's a form of um, persuasion tactic. So they say, you know, you, you just make people so scared of this guy Trump that you get to paint yourself as the good guy and the protector of all the things he's not and all the things he's a threat to. So it's a form of entrenching yourself in the public eye, and 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 all the coming there. There are going to be a lot more films made about the glory of the press, sort of sanctifying themselves uh, in the spirit of all the president's men, which is one of my favourite films, by the way. And, because it was based on fact, and it was one of the high moments of, of the independent press. But in the current situation, reliving those glories of the past, just like the films about civil rights and all the kind of repackaging of the 60s civil rights thing, it's being used as a way of positioning, of certain people positioning their own vested interests as being automatically the public interest and and in defense of the public interest so ironically in a way the very things that the the mainstream media seem to be accusing trump of and there are lots of things you can accuse trump of and um, this is not a personal defense of the man there are lots there's some things i think he's done right and there's some things i do think he's he's he, he he's dangerous too but the very things that he gets accused of, the, the, the kind of demagogic tactics, the media are doing that. The media, the media themselves are doing that. And they are just as much a threat, if not more. In fact, in my view, I just in, in my view, the reason why I'm not as angry about Trump or don't hate him as much as everyone else seems to do is because I do think that his enemies are, are more dangerous than he is. It's not especially some attraction to the guy, you know? I like how he annoys all the right people. I have to admit about that. But it, whatever he can be shown to be doing, and most of it's just saying stupid or uh, exaggerated things that might be throwing public interest into some form of chaos, but it never quite is the way the media paints it. But whatever that is, the, the sort of... Um, network of media and politicians that kind of elite and and corporate interests it all seems to be working in the same unit now i can't absolutely prove this this is not some unified all-encompassing reductive conspiracy theory it's just an intuition which a lot of people have, and I'm just going to say I have it as well, and I've had it for a long time. And it was a big part of the reason I voted Brexit, which I'm proud of, was the feeling that there was this sort of, um, I'm trying to think of the word, matrix of vested interests, which seemed to be expressing themselves in a kind of monolithic, homogenized way. In, in, in a kind of uncannily similar way. So what the media were telling me and what politicians were telling me and what uh, judicial experts and academics were telling me all was just kind of the same thing. There was no variance in it. If there had been more variance in it, then it might have been 
recognizably just a, a, a coincidence of, of um, wisdom. But the fact that it was this very much this kind of PR tactic of fear-mongering uh, suggested enough to me that there was a, a, a matrix of vested interests across the board and all the more reason to vote the way that I intuitively felt I should. And people who voted for Trump, I, I'm going to speculate that the large amount of people were those type of people, not what the media presents it as, that they were all racists or blah, blah, blah. That's just, all of that is just a way of positioning your own vested interest as the ultimate truth. And there's nothing more demagogic than that. There's nothing more threatening to public life than, than using shame and fear to position your own vest, your own conveniently vested interest. It just happens to be that your vested interest is the one that's the, the right one. You know, there's nothing more threatening than that. There's nothing more threatening to democratic life. There's nothing more threatening to public debate. There's nothing more threatening to citizenship and the 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 health of the individual conscience than one person's narrow point of view positioning itself through fear tactics as the golden objective truth and that's what the media is doing and that's one of the reasons i think it's a a form of terrorism because it's it that is a way of controlling people if you're using fear and panic to get to make sure that your own agenda manifests itself the quickest easiest way then you are a form of a terrorist in my view And as I say, shame and fear are the weapons that they use for that. So you can look at anything from the way that the Me Too coverage is being... It's not what's being covered, it's the way it's being covered. I'm making a point about here. The whole Me Too thing is just an example. Um, you know, you can look at the way Kanye West was treated in the press for just simply expressing his views. That's all he did. That's all he did. He just expressed his views. But one of the things that really got me thinking about this, then I think it was a... I actually think it might seem like a trivial example, but I actually think it's a very penetrating example because it really captures just how invidious these people are. It was uh, Elon Musk's brilliant appearance on Joe Rogan a couple of days ago. Uh, Elon Musk's awesome. I have to fully admit that I have a little bit of a man crush on that guy. He's He is... He's got this perfect balance of creativity and sort of scientific engineering prowess. You know, it's so rare to get that. And also he's got this way about him, which is very contemplative, not reactive at all. He's, that's one of the things I got from watching the two-hour podcast is this guy is not reactive at all. He's very, he, there's nothing that, it all gets filtered through a kind of independent thought process. Nothing is just... He's, he's not a guy who is beholden to his fight-or-flight uh, fight flight pathologies, or whatever you want to call them, insecurities. Um, but obviously, the, the way that it was reported was... Because he basically he took a he took a, uh, a puff of a blunt weed, uh, and the only thing out of a two hour or nearly three hour conversation, when they were talking about AI, they were talking about 
success. They were talking about the future, optimism, um, practicalities of certain types of engineering and solving certain major problems like climate change and, and uh, population growth and all this kind of stuff. Really in-depth and subtle and nuanced discussion, actually. Um, and, the, and the one thing that the headlines focused on was his smoking weed and how that had affected his share prices. <laughs> you know, that, that was the Guardian, you know. Shares plummet for Elon Musk after he smokes weed on Comedian's podcast. And it just thought that this is a perfect example of the media as a form of terrorism. Because this is a guy who potentially could really help humanity. This guy is really committed to what he does, and he's committed to solving problems rather than just profit margin. And he's sacrificed and demonstrated that enough for it to just be demonstrably true. However, he is in... Part of the problem that he has is that he is in elements of business which are heavily weighed down by monopolies. So there's a lot of vested interests against him being successful. He is some he is a glitch in the matrix in a big, big way. Guys like him should not have got through. Usually guys like him are bought out like the guys who started YouTube. They're bought out and they're 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 given billions so much so that they they kind of disappear. There's not there's, they can't the motivation to keep going and innovate is not there. Whereas this guy, this guy's got other things motivating him that are not so identifiable. He's not so beholden to fear and and the fear of risk as most other entrepreneurs are, and he's managed to make some headway on the basis of his ability to take a risk and to not buckle under pressure, but also added to that a kind of visionary way of solving problems, an independent way of thinking, a, a, a very unique blend of creativity and, and um, cognitive power. Um, and so he's a danger, you know? And it just showed to me that any, any anything that they can do they're using that that shame and fear, smoking weed. You know how how I, these are. That's a liberal paper. There were other papers that did it, but that's that was a liberal paper that did that supposedly, taking a taking a, a line on on a, on a potentially enlightening story. They could have, you know, he said some great things in that podcast, basically saying love is the answer. Be kinder to people. That's major major CEO. Not saying I'm great. You know, not being a Steve Jobs, but actually being a very humane personality in the public space. But what do they focus on? A kind of Victorian moralizing. And I say it's a kind of terrorism because it's destructive. It's so destructive. And it's it uses morality. It's, it's kind of based on Nietzsche, really, what I'm saying. The idea of resentment. Resentment not just being a kind of resentfulness, but uh, a buried, passive-aggressive, deep-seated contempt for anyone who's better than you, and that manifesting itself in subconscious ways. And one of the subconscious, and the best way to keep something subconscious and not to face up to that dark feeling is to moralize about it, to, to like the nihilists do, to kind of um, 
take the moral high ground. And this is what I think a lot of the PC culture is. It's a form of nasty, psychological repressiveness masquerading as moral high ground. And the reason why I feel okay with saying that is there are plenty of other ways to reach your, your goal in terms of human dignity than shutting people down or using shame uh, or broad sweeping generalizations to do it. So that just seemed, and I, I, a lot of that is, applies to the Kanye situation. I felt that way with Kanye. You know, yes, Kanye has done some dumb shit in the past. He blurts out narcissistic outbursts. He's not quite the dignified, contemplative, creative genius that Elon Musk is, but he is as important to the culture and has the potential to be as game-changing, without a doubt, um, and has proved that, actually. Um, so reducing everything to shame and fear so that we can't, ha we can't have a proper discussion about what might even be said that's controversial. This is a form of terrorism because it, it keeps it, one of the things, it keeps us fighting amongst ourselves, but it also sends kind of tectonic waves through the society. So you can take one instance of chaos or, 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 or the unknown or, or something that makes people anxious and you just send it like shockwaves, you start shaking up the still waters as much as possible on the basis of it. And uh, you you don't actually help anyone. I mean, going on about how, you know, look at the shares are going, what they're trying to do there, that's a, that's a, that's a weaponized because, as everyone knows, the, the economy is based on confidence. So if you're trying to, if you're using your headlines to shake investor confidence in somebody's business, by speculating about, you know, is the reason that there was a dip in the sh in the shares because he did this? That that is can can have a take on a life of its own. So there's no way you don't know that, and there's no way that if you are that you would do that if you liked the person, if you were okay with the person, you would because you know that that and I, this I, I mean this is it's so basic. There's no way that you would cast aspersions on on somebody to the point where people lose confidence in them if you didn't want to damage them in a, in a certain way. There's just no way of explaining why The Guardian and other people followed, but The Guardian particularly wrote that headline. Surely The Guardian's a liberal paper and it should be pro-drugs and shouldn't care. No, they wanted to damage his business and they want to, they want, they, and that just secures to me much more than something like Alex Jones or something more explicit, that there's a form of, of kind of cultural psychic terrorism going on in public life. And they want to keep us bickering amongst each other because they know that after 2008, basically, there wasn't enough accountability for the people who, who damaged public life in a, in a massive way. And they want to keep us, and the only way is to kind of divide and conquer. And that's why we're living in the world we are. That's why social media has turned out to be such a, a, a curse on the race, you know? But it, this speaks to another point that it got me thinking, you know, when I, th when I say I agree with Trump about the, the press being the enemy of the people, it makes me sad. Because a couple of years ago, 
when the Levison inquiry was going on in Britain after the phone hacking scandal and the news of the world, which had the news of the world shut down and people were, were, were found to be doing criminal things to get stories. It was a massive blight on the press. And there were a lot of people, wealthy people, celebrity people, PR people who formed Hacked Off, which is this sort of campaign group to, to get more regulation of the press. And I am viciously against this, viciously against it, and I was at the time. And it was a big one of the beginnings of my feeling of alienation from from sort of what's supposed to be the automatically liberal point of view, because a lot of people who I consider I would have thought of were liberal were were in favour of this kind of they were they were. Um, Whipped up into the what about Millie Dowler? What about the the because Millie Dowler's phone was hacked or something? She was a, a murder victim, and it was a disgusting thing. But it's already illegal. It's already illegal. A lot of the things that these journalists were accused of would be illegal for everybody across the board, whether they're journalists or not. So it's very clear cut case. But because there was so much um, so much of an agenda to to hamper the press and a kind of vengeful resentment about the press from, from a lot of celebrities. They, they were actually the ones who were the sick ones, jumping on the back of serious crimes in order to make, and, and making their own grievances against the press, however legitimate, honest, put that on the same moral level, which they weren't. That, to me, is the great sickness. But also, the, 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 the idea that they would be so willing to throw out the benefits of the free press for everybody in public life to get their own resentful agenda through and again the resentment is clear there because there's this moral high ground disguising basically personal grievance however my 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 um the strength of my defense of the press has weakened in the recent years from 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 witnessing the way the press has behaved itself through these things that I've talked about Brexit, Trump, little cases like Kanye and Elon Musk. These these kinds of things are just make it very very difficult, even more difficult to defend the free press. However, the free press it's not just about not allowing laws to uh, to to inhibit what an editor can do. That's that's the core aspect of the free press, but I think that one of the problems, and this came out of the Levison thing for me, one of the problems we have is that monopolies are so powerful that they, they have been allowed to live above the law. And yes, that, that is a problem. And I recognise that with Rupert Murdoch's uh, relationship with Tony Blair and all. That's how it started. A lot of this started with monopolies becoming so big, and this includes the Daily Mail and all that. They're, they're so big they can get away with things. That to me is not actually the free press, so there's a problem there. But it's 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 a matter of corporate regulation if it's a matter of regulation at all. It shouldn't be allowed to own more than a certain amount of outlets at one time, particularly if they have a certain amount of reach. Uh, but it seems like the the way that the communications economy has gone is that it's centralized, increasingly centralized media control. That's very true in the states. And there seems to be only kind of Rupert Murdoch and the Daily Mail group in this country. And The Guardian is a kind of halfway house, but it's always struggling. It's never making any money, so it's always under threat anyway. So 
the real free press to me is diversity of outlets, diversity of the real free press. I mean, what, what we now call the free press started, I would say, maybe in, uh, in the Regency period with people like Lee Hunt and the Examiner. When, when you suddenly got this plethora of upstart magazines and, and independent newspapers that were run on a budget, that were run by maybe three or four people that had a particular political voice, but there was so many, there was enough diversity of it that it was impossible really to regulate them. That it was it was a kind of boom in in, in small outlets, but they were quickly stamped down. I mean, Lee Hunt ended up going to prison for slagging off the Regent. But for a brief moment, there was this kind of upsurge in, in independent outlets. And that, to me, is the model of the... That's really what the free press really is in terms of our cultural heritage. But we've, it's, it's only in very rare moments like that that we've actually had that. So when I, when I talk about the free press, I mean something very specific. What I mean is the ability to do what I'm doing here, uh, the ability for citizens to have their individual voices heard. It's not a defense of corporate monopolies. And the problem with, the problem is not that we need another law, so to speak. The problem is, is that we need to stop corporations becoming so big and, and so central and the press becoming so centralized that they can manipulate public life and be held and, and, and avoid being held accountable to to basic violations of the law because of their size and their and their reach. That is a different issue to me than the question of the free press and, and with celebrities and hacked off there's a very cumbersome, clumsy, um, unnuanced attack on freedom just for their own agenda. And that's just, to me, another version of the media being anti-Trump. It's a kind of triangulation, uh, using moral high grounds to position yourself. Now, let me just say that when it comes to Trump, that I ha I'm not sure. I feel that Steve Bannon is another example of this from the right, you know, that he's got his own agenda and it's really just about personal interest. It's not really about civic duty. But with Trump, I don't know. I think that, the, I have to say, this is a very unpopular point of view, but, you know, whether he's right or wrong, I think there's more motivating him than just private interest. I don't think that accusation can be leveled against him. And I know that that puts me in a very, you know, people will, you know, if I say that in, like, a conversation in the pub, people will jump down my throat. But I just don't, I just, I'm being honest, I don't, I'm not convinced that he's just the raving thoughtless egotist that people tell me and that it's, he's only caring about deregulating so he can build more fucking um, casinos. I do think he's driven by a civic pride in, in you know, however narrow or um, anachronistic that might be. There's a civic duty to what he's doing as opposed to someone like Steve Bannon. So I think it's much more complex. The whole um, resurgence of conservatism and the right in America, I think it's much more complex than oh, the fascists. You know, I think that anyone doing that is trying to position themselves. Anyone who is using hysteria, shame, and fear to. and then comes in and says, We are the guys who will 
who are the who are the 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 tonic to this. They are they are the real threat in my view, and that's just where where I'm at, you know. And it saddens me that the press has been allowed to do this. But I think a lot of the the crimes can be can be dealt with through corporate regulation rather than regulation via content. Um, and the the true free press. If you want to secure the free press, you you support independent outlets. I've said that before, but it's worth repeating. And the the reason why I'm talking in terms of terrorism is because one of the things that the the real violent terrorist attacks in the last couple of years have brought forth to me is that it isn't really about what makes them unique is not the loss of life. Lots of things cost loss of life. Lots of horrible murders, lots of um, political killings, even assassinations and um, just direct forms of nasty, sick aggression. But what makes terrorism unique is that though the 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 death and destruction is used for a political gain. Um, and that, as Hitch used to say, the ends are the means. The means are the ends. You know, it's, uh, you know, with something like 9-11, the, the end was just maximum destruction and chaos and a damaging of society. And the way you do that is just damage society. But there's a kind of sick propaganda tactic in, involved in terrorism. And that's what annoys me. And I think that if I've got anything, to, and the reason why I get particularly annoyed about certain acts of terrorism, as opposed to just the loss of life in other areas, and this has been brought up as people saying, oh, you're hypocrites, you're only interested in this, but you don't care about the... No, it's a particular kind of assault on society which bothers me. And I think what bothers me about it is that it would be easy to prevent the success of that kind of damage if we were able to make our culture psychologically more resilient than it is. You know, I cannot stop gunmen. With, you know, the pen is not as mightier than the sword as to stop a rain of terror and bullets randomly happening in the street. I can't do that. But what, but what I feel that myself and anyone else who, who, who writes or who makes art or um, who puts their work out there to, to, in the service of insight in some way we cannot we can definitely contribute to a culture which makes us much more resilient to the effects of terrorism to the propagandist tactic in in, in terrorist acts and i just feel that the, the 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 it's not even an analogy it's it's just true that the media is a form of terrorism and should be treated as such because while there might not be any direct killing involved it is, it is just as insidious in its propaganda technique of positioning vested interests through using fear and chaos. It's just psychological assault. Um, and that, by the way, none of this is to, 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 to take away from, you know, the, obviously the, the most shocking thing in a terrorist attack is the loss of life. But what starts to seep into your mind afterwards is, is, is the horror that this shocking loss of life has been used in the service of some dangerous ideas. That, that to me, is horrifying. And not only 
do you feel? And, and I guess this is that not only, I guess the where the just the fear and rage comes from within me is not only now do I fear for my life when I go in the tube, I also fear for my society that whatever damage is done physically will have this resonant effect through the society that it just it there's something added to the to the fear and the terror and and, and the shock and the sadness of violent assault when you have this other prop when when you realize that the violence itself is only itself in in in, in service of some dangerous idea And that, that's, that's where I've been in my mindset for the last couple of years. And we cannot stop the violence, necessarily, unless you're a soldier. And we are lucky to have a security force in Britain and in America who really have been protecting us for the last 18 months in ways that we will never know. But we, but but the game we can we can fight is to make sure that the, whatever whatever ideas they are hoping to to to, to it's kind of like they create chaos as a seedbed in order to plant the seed of their idea. And it's, again, it's that demagogic technique that everyone's accusing Trump of doing, but the media are doing it just as well. And the the only thing that as artists and writers and poets and musicians and whatever we can do is to to make sure that. That chaos never quite, never quite manifests itself the way they need it to. That we can help create a cultural resilience in a kind of collective way, so that nuance is never fully lost, so that uh, diversity of opinion is never truly centralised. That's the best we can do, and it's a it's a war of attrition. It's not something you can change overnight or even over twenty years. It's it's bit by bit. You just you just have to insist on on the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And that is why I'm against fake morals like political correctness. Not because I'm in favour. Not because I'm some white guy who doesn't like being told what to do. No. It's because those kind of tactics don't work and all they ever serve to do is to, to take nuance out of public life in a very dangerous way. And usually the people who want to do that are like the media. They are presenting a moral case when actual they, they want to position themselves through terror and fear and chaos, whether it's psychological or physical. So the media is a form of terrorism, in my view, at the moment. The way the state of the media is a form of terrorism, and I can't think of it in any other way. Okay, thanks for listening. That was episode 77. I'll be back next week. Thank you.